Podcastle, episode 406, for March 8, 2016. The Little Dog Ahoy by Anatoly Belilovsky. Rated PG. Hello everyone, welcome to Podcastle, your weekly dose of all that's good in the world of fantasy. I'm your co-editor and host, Graham Dunlop. So how did you find last month's Artemis Rising 2 stories? I've seen the forum comments and it seems the stories have gone down pretty well. Please do come to the forums and comment if you haven't already because we love hearing from you. And we really hope that you enjoyed all the stories as much as we enjoyed finding and bringing them to you. Thanks so much to the people who brought you the artistry, our wonderful authors, our fabulous narrators and our sparkling guest hosts, and also a big thanks to our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali, who was our guest editor for the event. And don't forget, you still have time to purchase a print of the gorgeous event artwork by legendary illustrator Galen Dara. It's available from Society 6 until March 31st, 2016. Go to society6.com, that's the number 6, slash escape artists. Links will be in the show notes. And so on to today's story, which is The Little Dog Ohori by Anatoly Belilovsky. It originally appeared in the Mammoth Book of Steampunk from Running Press in June 2012. Anatoly Belilovsky is a Russian-American author and translator of speculative fiction. He was born in a city that went through six or seven owners in the last century, all of whom used it to do a lot more than just drive to church on Sundays. He's old enough to remember tanks rolling through on their way to Czechoslovakia in 1968. After being traded to the US for a shipload of grain and a defector to be named later, courtesy of the Jackson-Vanek Amendment, He learned English from Star Trek reruns and went on to become a paediatrician in an area of New York where English is only the fourth most commonly used language. His work appears in Year's Best FF number 32, edited by Gardner Dozois, UFO 1, that's Unidentified Funny Objects, Nature, Starship Sofa, Cast of Wonders, and F and SF, among others. He has a story called Iron Felix, in the upcoming anthology Genius Loci, Tales of the Spirit of Place, edited by Jane Gates. He blogs about writing at loldoc.net. Your narrator is Tatiana Gomberg, who's a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She's been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She lives in New York City, See more about her at tatianagomberg.com And enjoy the story. The Little Dog Ordi by Anatoly Belilovsky The young soldier jumps to his feet, snaps to attention. At ease, Corporal, the officer says. And please sit down. A white coat hangs off the officer's shoulders. It hides her shoulder tabs leaving visible only the caduceus in her lapel. The soldier hesitates. The officer leans against the wall. Her coat falls off one shoulder, revealing three small stars. The soldier's eyes widen. 
begging Comrade Colonel's pardon, he says, and sits down. The movement is slow and uncertain, as if his body fights the very thought of sitting while an officer stands. Sit, the officer says, more firmly now. This is an order. Thank you, Comrade Colonel, the soldier says, sees a small frown crease the officer's face and adds, I mean, doctor. The officer smiles and nods. A strand of graying hair escapes her knot and falls onto her face. She sweeps it back with an impatient gesture. Carry on, she says. The soldier hesitates again. That's an order, too, she says and points to the caduceus in her lapel. A medical order. Thank you, doctor, the soldier says. I only came to visit. I'm not here as a patient. She is, the doctor says and tilts her head at the hospital bed. The soldier turns to face the dying woman in the bed, leans toward her, takes her hand, and whispers to her in a language the doctor does not understand. Cold. Lying on the riverbank in a puddle of blood and melting snow, she listens for the sounds of gunfire, the roar of engines, the clatter of tank tracks, anything to say she's not alone. She no longer feels her hands, though she can see her right hand on the trigger of her Tokare 40, the index finger frozen into a hook. She no longer feels pain where the shell splinter tore into her belly, only cold. Cold comfort, too in the bodies scattered on the ice beyond the riverbank, eleven black specks against relentless white, eleven fewer Waffen-SS, eleven plus two hundred and three, already in the kill book, makes two hundred and three fewer who could threaten. Her mind's eye projects a glimpse of Salim's face against the night. Then all is dark again. She listens and hears a friendly sound. The little dog Oori is barking. Help! From a throat parched raw through desiccated lips, one of the last small drops of strength drains into the world. The barking stops, but silence does not return. There's a noise like leaves fluttering in the wind. No, wait, it's winter. A white cloak for camouflage in the snow. No grass to hide, no leaves to whisper. Whisper. Is she... A woman's whisper, in Russian. I don't know. Another voice, a woman too, or a goddess. Please. Another drop of strength, gone, but now she can see Selim again, him with his great happy crooked smile. She tries to touch it, but it is out of reach. Could this be Ogushin, the taker of souls? Or the nine-tailed werefox Kumiho? She can no longer tell what is real and what is not. There is only strength enough to hope. Please, little dog Oori who brings lost loves together. The darkness deepens. Please, angel Onyulai who watches over orphans. Please, sister sun and brother moon, please, if only for a moment. Please let me see my family again. Were you close, the two of you? The doctor asks. The soldier opens his mouth, closes it again. His eyes grow distant, focused far away. Sorry, the doctor says. Stupid of me to ask. The soldier nods. 
The doctor takes it as, yes, we were close, not, yes, stupid of you to ask. The woman's breathing is becoming ragged. A burst of rapid gasps, then slow breaths, then rapid again. I'm sorry, the doctor says. It won't be long now. The soldier reaches into his tunic pocket, brings out a tattered notepad. The doctor bends forward to look at it. Her diary? Her kill book, the soldier answers. Ah, the doctor says. I see. The captain's name, Krivi, is Ukrainian. Age, he says. Nineteen, she answers, a pang of guilt for lying. Ethnicity, Uzbek, she says, a smaller pang. Why do you want to enlist? This is a question she does not expect. This question wouldn't ever be asked of a man, or a great Russian. She rifles through a list of plausible lies and settles on a partial truth. I want to be a sniper. The captain looks up from his notes. His ice-blue eyes aim at her face. Sniper, he says. Can you see well enough with those? He squints in imitation of her features. She looks out at the sun-baked desert beyond the open window. Some distance away, a truck approaches, raising a plume of dust behind it. She points in its direction. Truck number 4311, she says, and looks at the captain again. The captain stands up, approaches the window. He watches the truck approach, squints, this time in concentration, and leans out the window. I see the eleven, he says, slowly, then after a pause. Yes, forty-three eleven. He returns to his chair, crosses a line off of his notes, and writes another. You'll do, he says, and shouts, Next! The woman's hand tightens, just enough to see the tiny twitch. The soldier puts the kill book in her hand. Another twitch. The doctor leans against the door jamb. The wood plank creaks. The soldier looks up. It took an hour to pry her from the river bank. The soldier says, Two nurses from the medical sanitary battalion, in the dark, under enemy fire. He shakes his head. And then they dragged her back to the division hospital three kilometers away. He touches his chest. Two of his medals ring together. No matter what I do, I'll never be their equal. The doctor's hands are in the pockets of her tunic. Her fingers itch for something, a cigarette, a scalpel... She worries at the knots in the pocket seam, rolls specks of lint into a ball. Surgery is easy, she thinks. Listening is hard. She looks at the kill book. I'll remember her name. Heroes should never be forgotten. The soldier raises his head, looks straight at her. She sees the hesitation in his eyes and the crystallization at a decision. That is not her real name he says slowly, and looks at the dying woman again. The doctor does, too. She compares the dying woman's features with the soldier's. Her trained mind catalogues the differences. She reaches for the kill book, turns its pages with reverence. Places. Stalingrad, Kursk, Smolensk. Dates. 
last in December 1943. Ranks, Charfour SS, Feldwebel, Hauptmann. And on the last page, a stick figure of a dog, and writing in neither Cyrillic nor Arabic nor Latin. She looks up for a moment, then turns to the soldier sharply. Korean? She says. The soldier nods. Passing for... She hesitates. Kazakh? Uzbek. The soldier says quietly. 1937? The doctor asks. Matching the soldier's tone comes naturally. Suppressing the urge to look behind her does not. The soldier looks up. Not many people know about that. The doctor says nothing. My grandfather was selling lamb samsai at a train station, the soldier says. A train carrying deportees stopped there one day. It had been traveling from Vladivostok for a month. The doctor's fingers scramble in her pocket. She bites her lip. They stopped to bury the dead in the desert. Her mother was one of them. She was 13 and an orphan. Grandfather brought her back to Arkishluk. She became one of the family. Salim comes out of the recruiting office, a happy grin on his face. I did it, he says. They're sending me to sniper school and I have you to thank. She draws a breath. Did you tell them? He shakes his head. I'm not that stupid, can you imagine? Oh yes, comrade captain, a little girl taught me everything I know about hunting. They would call a neuropathologist next to have my head examined. I'm not little, Salim she says firmly. I'll be 18 come spring, and I'll enlist too. I'll ask to join your unit, and we'll be together again. His face grows somber. They won't take you, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? She puts her hand on her hip. They take girls. They don't take Koreans, he whispers. They have a list of undesirables, only assigned to labor battalions, Tatars, Volga, Germans, Chechens. He looks down, spurns a clot of dirt with the toe of his boot, then looks at her again. Koreans, too, I'm sorry. She does not answer, except for a glint in her eye. Exactly, he thinks, like a reflection off the barrel of Grandfather's old Mosin Gun 300. Exactly like the glint she had on the first anniversary of her joining the clan, when, returning to the Kishluk with an antelope and two hares in the back of their donkey-drawn arba, she turned to him and said, in too precise Karakal Paku's back, When I am old enough, Salim, we will be married. The doctor is used to silences. The soldier is not. You might not believe this, but she taught me to shoot, the soldier says. The doctor says nothing. She reaches for the kill book, turns its pages with reverence. What am I saying? The soldier says, of course you believe it. Colonel, most people... Most people don't command a military hospital, the doctor says. Most people haven't seen what soldiers are made of. You must have as a surgeon, the soldier says. That too, she whispers. The train approaches the smoke from its engine thinning, the chuffing slowing down. This makes no sense, says Uncle Soy. 
First of all, there is no war now. The Japanese were beaten at Halhingol, and they are not coming back. Secondly, even if they were, why would we help them? We left Korea to get away from the Japanese. And thirdly, why resettle all of us? They could just arrest the richer peasants, like uh, the Puck family. He sighs. No, I think it's a mistake. I think someone misunderstood what Comrade Stalin said, and when that becomes clear, the train will turn around and bring us back here. I just hope it won't be too late for the apple harvest. He looks up to find that his niece isn't looking at him. She's staring at the train in the distance. This isn't polite, Uncle Soy says. You should pay attention when your elders are talking. She nods absentmindedly. Haven't you ever seen a train before? Uncle Soy says and follows her gaze. His face drops. This isn't a passenger train, he whispers. We are going to travel 10,000 kilometers in cattle cars. They wait for the train in silence. A man approaches a great Russian by his appearance. Comrade Soy, he calls. Which one of you is Comrade Soy? Uncle Soy stands up straighter. See, he says. Someone realized it's a mistake. He turns to the man and raises his hand. I'm Soy, he says loudly. Please, come with us, the man says softly. Uncle Soy turns to her. Go get your mother. Just you, the man says. The train stops. The gates slide open with a clatter. All aboard, a man shouts from the locomotive. She watches Uncle Soy escorted away from the train past a line of armed soldiers until she feels her mother tug at her hand. She turns. There are tears in her mother's coal black eyes rolling down her face that is the palest she had ever seen. Come. Have to go, her mother says. A cough escapes before she can cover her mouth. They board the train in silence, find a spot to sit. More people come, until there is no more room, then some more, then more. Then finally there is a whistle, the gates clang shut, and the train departs. My brother, her mother whispers. She leans closer to her mother. They are both too old to believe in little dog Oori, but she decides she'll never be too old to hope. Do you see your target? Uncle Soy says. Her head tilted over the stock of Uncle Soy's Burdun rifle, she gives a tiny nod. What are you aiming at? Uncle Soy asks. The big pine cone, she says. That is wrong, says Uncle Soy. Pick a scale, one scale on the whole pine cone. Aim at that, have you got that? She nods again. Now, breathe in, then out, and on the out, close your whole hand on the trigger. She presses on the trigger, flinching just a bit before the rifle bucks and the shot explodes. The pine cone dances but does not fall. Two more things, says Uncle Soy. First, squeeze the trigger slowly enough that the shot comes as a surprise to you. Understand? She nods. And the second? She says. Connect with your target, says Uncle Soy. Some people imagine reaching out and touching it. Some talk to the target in their minds. Some apologize in advance for hitting it. You have to care in some way about the target to shoot true. She aims again, breathes in and out, 
imagines the little dog Oori running to the pine tree, leaping to sniff the pine cone, leaving a wet print of its nose on one particular scale. The shot rings out, startling her. The pine cone disintegrates into a cloud of chaff. She talked about her uncle so much I felt like I knew him, the soldier says. Sometimes I could almost hear his voice come out of her mouth. When Brother Moon and Sister Sun lived together on Mount Pektu, they had a little dog named Oori who loved them both. And when the supreme god, Chinjiwang, sent each of them to a different part of the sky, Oori ran from one to the other until he brought them together. But when they met, they shone light only on each other, leaving the earth in pitch darkness. So Queen Baji petitioned Chinjiwang to allow them only one meeting a month. So each new moon, Oori is free to roam the earth... And when you hear barking on a moonless night, it just might be Oori searching for you. To bring back someone you miss very much. The soldier's voice wavers on the last words. The doctor reaches to touch the soldier's shoulder. Her hand trembles an inch above his shoulder board, then pulls back to wipe her tears. She blinks and hopes her eyes have time to dry before he sees them. Colonels don't cry, not with a corporal present. Is it a star shell, or dawn already? It is light. Light enough to see green grass, birch trees and leaf, it can't be spring. Or does it matter? The rhythmic footfalls, she hears. Pulsing blood, or boots measuring time? And faces, smiling faces she never thought she'd see again and voices she never hoped to hear cry once more, just one more time, hurrah, 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 and nipping at their feet, the little dog Oori, his barking mixing with laughter and with the shouts of welcome. The hand gives one more twitch. The chest rises, falls, never to rise again. The soldier frees his hand from the lifeless grasp, smooths the dead woman's hair, stands up, face to face with the doctor. Thank you, he says. For what? The doctor says. We got to see each other, she and I. The soldier says. It's worth so much to you, the doctor says. To me? The soldier raises his eyebrows. It does not matter what it's worth to me. It's what she wanted. She was worth a million of me, you know. He pats his pockets, takes out his cap, places it on his head, draws to attention and salutes. Goodbye, he begins, but then his voice gives out. The doctor reaches for a carafe on a bedside table, looks for a glass, finds none, and hands the carafe to the soldier. Here, drink from that. Go ahead, drink. The soldier brings the carafe to his mouth, takes a long swallow. Thank you, he says, and thank you for bringing her here. I know you bent the rules. We take care of our own, the doctor interrupts, which includes you. Go get some sleep, stop by my office in the morning. I'll have my clerk process a leave extension. The soldier shakes his head. He steps past the doctor through the door takes another step into the corridor, stops, turns around, and faces the dead woman again. Goodbye, grandmother, 
he says. Give my regards to Grandpa Salim and to all of your old comrades. He takes a breath. And a few of mine. He turns to the doctor. Please, comrade colonel, don't order me to stay. We, too, take care of our own. My unit is short a man until I come back, and... He checks his watch. An Anton of 24 is scheduled to lift off for Kabul in an hour. He draws to attention and salutes again. I beg the colonel's permission to be dismissed, he says in crisp militaries. Granted, the doctor says and watches him march away. It isn't lost on her that his cadence is the same as the change of watch before the monument to the unknown soldier. The doctor waits until she hears his footfalls no more before she covers the dead woman's face. And welcome back. I love this story. It is, of course, quite melancholy, but I think sweetly so. Love, ambition, skill, valor, dying, transition, reuniting with lost loved ones, it's all there. What stands out for me is the image of that little dog, Ahori. I love dogs. I have one of my own. And I can just see this little dog in my mind. He's little, sure, but he's not one of those annoying little yappers. Just a happy, sweet little thing. Maybe like a small Jindo or Jiju dog. Running back and forth between people. He's excited for them. He's excited to see people happy. He's excited for himself to be part of it. I can see him running up, tail wagging with a happy grin as if to say, Oh, here you are. Great. Come, come, come. I found someone you want to see. Come, come. And then he bounces off, stops, looks back at you and you can't help but follow. And follow you do until you meet. Ah, (laughs) I'll make myself cry like this. So let's turn now to assistant editor Khalida for feedback. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for PodCastle episode number 396, Spirits of the Wind by Brendan Detzner. This episode stirred up a lot of different opinions. Mazalu had this to say. The best thing about this story, I thought, was how subtle the fantastic was. I thought the spirits were paying attention to Kevin, not Kat, for the first half of the story. I'm not sure how I feel about the POV shift in the middle. It generally doesn't work in short stories, and I'm not sure this is an exception. I think it would have worked better to stick with just Kat or Kevin's POV, but I'm not sure which would work better. I'm also not sure about Kevin's reaction to Kat's beloved. You're an A vowed atheist and a great horn god tells you to buy your girlfriend flowers, and it just doesn't cause any mental angst? Still, I enjoyed this story. It's an interesting world, and I'd like to learn more about Kat and her beloved. Unblinking thought this. I'm afraid I found this one really dull. In the mundane portion, the people felt real, so that was good. It was an interesting study in what things may be crossing a person's mind on a first or second date. As she is closely examining his tone of voice to gauge his sincerity, 
He is closely examining her reaction to driving through a neighborhood that's rougher than she is accustomed to. It felt real, but for me, it felt kind of exhausting. Maybe this is just a personal hang-up from having in-person social issues. I can't read other people's social cues very well, and the cues I give are often misleading. I think that I might have been dismissed early in her date because of cues I was giving that I wasn't even aware of. So even though I understand where it's coming from, I found it very frustrating for that to be the basis of everything, those subtle tones of voice and etc. Maybe because of the super depth scrutiny, each POV, I found the characters hard to relate to. They felt real, but I didn't really care how things turned out. I wasn't really invested in their budding relationship. I kept waiting for something to happen that I would feel invested in, and that never happened. The fantastical parts. They just felt really tacked on. I didn't think they added anything. The first one, the request for her to give up this mortal life while she chooses to stay here, I'm not sure what that accomplished story-wise. Although the goddess in that scene was our protagonist from before, they were clearly so very different characters because of the memory limit that is, that it wasn't really enlightening to understand the protagonist at all in my opinion. And the second scene boils down to godly advice to give her flowers. Maybe it would have been more significant in my mind if it hadn't been the basic standard advice about what to give a woman as a present, like give her a Dostoevsky book or buy her a Roomba, would have been much more interesting simply because they would not be standard practice. Just not for me, I guess. On to next week. Fenrix had this to say. Great character study that effectively captured anxiety of these two characters. Not sure how I felt about the intrusion of the horned demon at the jazz club. Didn't help that I kept picturing him as Tim Curry in Legend. Thank you, Mazalu, Unblinking, Fenrix, and everyone else who stopped by to comment. Keep coming back to let us know what you think of our stories. And for those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artists Forum at forum escapeartists.net. We would love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Kalita. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, thanks for stopping by and listening to the story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you, Colonels, don't cry. Not with a corporal present. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives International 4.0 License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva and Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de We rely on you to keep our podcastle flying. Through your generosity, we continue to sail through the skies. If you already donate, thank you. And if you don't, did you know you can support us from as little as $2 a month? Regular donations help immensely. 
and we love one-off donations too. You can donate at the Podcastle website. Go to podcastle.org and find the Support Us section down the right-hand side. And if you don't donate, that's fine. We completely understand. You can help us also by telling others about Podcastle. Write about us on your blog. Mention us on Facebook or Twitter. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. It all helps immensely. Hi there. If you hadn't noticed, Escape Artist is growing. One of our exciting new ventures is the e-zine, Mothership Zeta. I'm Mer Lafferty, editor of this new venture, and my team and I are hoping to bring you the most fun stories that science fiction, fantasy, and horror have to offer. Not only that, we have reviews of books, stories, video games, and we have science columns, and a story doctor column from award-winning SF veteran storyteller James Patrick Kelly. You won't find a column like this anywhere else. We're a quarterly zine, and you can get us issue by issue. But since you're a discerning podcast listener, clearly you're all about the beauty of subscriptions. You can get that too. Go to mothershipzeta.org, check out our new issues, our free fiction, and then find out the many ways you can get this fun new zine that features stories from T. Kingfisher, John Chu, Sonia Natasha, and more. The American theologian Tyron Edwards said, Every parting is a form of death, as every reunion is a type of heaven.